Hello, fellow time travelers, Tony Witt here. I need to apologize ahead of time for the quality of this episode. It's nothing to do with the panel. It's everything to do with the fact that we were trying to use some new recording equipment. I tested it ahead of time, and it worked perfectly fine before we recorded, but somehow an echo started showing up about halfway through. And so when you listen to this episode, you'll hear both Allison and Jenny's voices start echoing, and then that echo will go away, and then it'll come back, and I really do apologize for the quality. I did everything that I could to clean it up. Um, anyway, I do hope you enjoy the episode despite all of these problems. Please let us know if you liked it anyway, and enjoy. Time travelers, and welcome back to the Doctor Who Target Book Club, the podcast in which we undertake the landmark task of discussing in story order all the Doctor Who novelizations. My name is Tony Whit, and today we have an equally landmark three-person discussion panel, including our so-called es- <laughs> including our so-called expert, who's been a Who fan since 1979. That would be me. Obviously, not an expert at public speaking, though. Dalton Hughes, our usual intermediate fan, is unfortunately hors de combat because he's broken his foot. I told him he shouldn't go off to Thanksgiving with the family, but would he listen? No. And he has a broken foot for it. And he walked to Thanksgiving dinner in the forest barefoot. I think he did. I think he did. So, Dalton, we miss you. Hopefully you'll be back for the next one. If not, then we'll see you at the new year, but we do miss you. So today we have not one but two novice fans one who has seen little to none of the original series and has not previously read any of the books except for the ones we've done for this podcast. And this time around, it's the wise and witty Alison Fitch Seyfried. Hello, Alison. Good evening. Yes, and we welcome back our other novice fan, who's already giggling, who has not seen the original series and has only read a few other books of the series up to this point, and that is the wonderful and glamorous Jenny Ingersoll. Hello, Jenny. Hello. I kind of roll in when I feel like it. Yes, you do. But when you roll in, we get your <laughs> like kitchen table. Like all the table. coolest kids. Yes, yes, but we're at her kitchen table right now having lovely cheese and strawberries and wine, so that's the nice thing. Before we get to talking about the book, please remember our new Patreon page, available at patreon.com forward slash dwtargetbc. Depending on the amount you give per month, you will receive a randomly chosen BBC book, not a Target book, since we know you have those already. You've told us so many times. As a gift for supporting us, just to say thank you for being willing to help us stay on the virtual air. In addition to thanking our regular patrons, Bart Lammy and Rick Taylor. Hello, Bart. Hello, Rick. Hi. Hi. Hey. We would now like to welcome and thank our newest patron, Toby Benkelsdorf. Oh my gosh! Yes, Toby. you recognize that <laughs> name, don't you? So we'd like to thank Toby, even though we know that Toby does not listen to this. He just supported us out of the goodness <laughs> of his heart, so he's not going to hear a word we say, but thank you, Toby. Thanks, Toby. Yes. Thanks, Toby, whoever you are. Yes. This time, we get another Hartnell story novelized in the 80s in our discussion of John Lucarati's final novelization of his own script for the Doctor Who story, The Massacre. Without further ado, here are some fast facts. 
Doctor Who The Massacre, adapted by John Lucarotti from a script that aired from 2566 to 22666, published by Target Books in November 1987. As of this recording in December of 2017, this title is currently out of print, but is available as an unabridged BBC audiobook, 144 pages. Alright, let's read the blurb on the back and see what this whole puppy is about, shall we? Sure. My puppies usually don't have blurbs on them. Your puppies don't have blurbs on them? Oh, that's okay. I think we'll live with it. The fur, it obscures. The fur, it obscures. The fur, it obscures. The TARDIS lands in Paris on August 19th, 1572. Driven by scientific curiosity, the doctor leaves Stephen to meet and exchange views with the apothecary Charles Preslin, or Charles Preslin. Before he disappears... I know. I, Wait, I'm what was that word you said? Ch- Charles Prislin. I think that's how it's pronounced. I try. Before he disappears, he warns Stephen to stay out of mischief, religion, and politics. Three things you should never talk about at Thanksgiving dinner well, or Christmas really, dinner. Is there worth talking about? This? Nothing. But in 16th century Paris, it's impossible to remain a mere observer, and Stephen soon finds himself involved with a group of Huguenots, or Huguenots. The Protestant minority of France is being threatened by the Catholic hierarchy and danger stalks the Paris streets. As Stephen tries to find his way back to the TARDIS, he discovers that one of the main persecutors of the Huguenots appears to be the Doctor. Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) Lord. Uh, Let me pass the book around. You obviously have seen the cover, but that is the actual thing. You said something I about talk. the cover. You were talking about the Obi-Wan Kenobi thing that the Doctor's doing in the... It just looks like an Obi-Wan motherfucker. I was like, who is this? <laughs> <laughs> and then, oh, okay, now I understand. It's not like, the Doctor. The, the TARDIS is on fire. Yes. That the I... TARDIS, the TARDIS, the TARDIS is on fire. <laughs> oh, that's terrible. I'm sorry. I didn't. I don't think I processed what the flames were in the picture. Oh, um, I see. I just like didn't think about it because I was distracted by is who, what's the name of um, the Obi Wan Kenobi actor? I forget what his name um, is. Um, oh yes. yes, Alec Guinness. Thank yeah, you. Yeah, I was just distracted by Alec Guinness. Um, <laughs> hey, Which is actually Hartnell doing not, his best Alec not Guinness. Not nearly as good looking as Guinness. No, 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 not actually. Not there anyway. But yeah, that's, and that's not even the doctor on the cover. That's the Abbot of Amboise. How are we supposed to know they're supposed to be identical? Well, he looks kind of mean there. Well, that doesn't exactly have the first doctor say. out, does it? Yeah, he looks a little mean there as well. Well, I think he's in a dog cart. So yeah, if he's in a dog cart, it's got to be the first doctor. Did he offer to commission dog carts to come pick us up? Pick us up at home and bring us over today. Yes, this because... is our drinking game for the episode. Every time we say dog cart, we used to take a hit yes. and or a shot. Because for some reason, they feature quite prominently in the book. They're not in the televised version. As a matter of fact, yeah, I'll talk about that here That's in a minute. Too bad, because I have so many questions. Like, how many dogs are hitched up? Are they just mostly for the tunnels or getting around town? I'll never be able to tell you, because they're not in the televised version. And, well, we'll talk about that, too. We've already covered a lot about John Lucarotti in episodes 4 and 6. And, of course, Jenny was part of episode 4 when we talked about Marco Polo and disagreed on it. Hey. <laughs> yes, exactly. But just a reminder, he was born in 1926 in England, but had an extensive career writing for Canadian television before returning to the UK and writing even more there. In addition to the three complete stories he did for Doctor Who, this is the third one, he wrote ten episodes of The Avengers, not the comic book you know, <laughs> franchise, but the John Steed and Emma Peel franchise, and The Massacre was his last script. 
and his last novelization, and he died in 1994. We can say whatever we like. We can. We've always been able to. I'm holding in my small celebration, but we'll see <laughs> oh, God, are you celebrating <laughs> the fact that yeah. this is the last wow, one he wrote? Oh, yes. Yeah. Well, I've never been subjected to his work before, so not, I... Not my favorite oh, writer. Not terrible, reasons. but it's not. Oh, but I'm not exactly reasons. gagging for more, either. Okay. It's gagging, gagging for more. Gagging for it. She's not gagging for it. <laughs> I'm not gagging for more. We got sassy real fast <laughs> over here. Wow. This is going to be fun sassy. to edit. Yeah, the massacre. <laughs> okay, I need to take a drink for that one. Mm. Dog card. The massacre is one of those stories that we have little to none of the original imagery. We have the audio, but telesnaps were not taken for this story. So you don't know if they show you how many dogs. No, no, the carts aren't in the I will be fixing Enough with the cards. They're not in the original. No, they're not in the original. So we have only a few promotional photos of Stephen in period costume and the Doctor in his Abbott costume. Are telesnaps like a screenshot from TV? That's literally what it is. Okay. I don't think I've ever ta told you about this. I've just never seen that word before. Okay, um, for because I'm sure there's going to be somebody that doesn't know this among the listeners too, but telesnaps, once upon a time... When directors wanted to have a portfolio of work, they couldn't just send around a videotape of their stuff like they can now or a disc of it. Mm -hmm. They instead had to hire a photographer to take photos of a television screen when it was airing. Oh, interesting. And there was a guy named John Cura who did this for a lot of shows, including Doctor Who. Hmm. So most of the Doctor Who stories we have visual records okay. for because we have the telesnaps. Yeah. And we have the audio recordings because you had all these, you know, audiophile Doctor Who fans way back in the day who would wire their reel-to-reel -reel audio recorders into their television jacks oh. and they would get crystal as crystal clear as you can get. Mm. So we have the audio for the story, but we don't have the telesnaps. Okay. Same thing was true of Marco Polo, in fact. Mm. We have the audio, no telesnaps. What we do know, especially if we listen to the story and then read this book, is that they couldn't be more different. Um, there are a couple reasons for this. One of these is that while it was always intended that Hartnell should play two characters, it was never certain that he could play two mm -hmm. characters. Like that he, not certain that he would be skilled enough at it? Yeah, well, okay. his health. Ah, okay. Yeah, they were worried about him being able to remember two tracks of dialogue. Oh, wow. <clears throat> yeah. He was not entirely himself by that no, time? No, oh, no. Because the arteriosclerosis was taking its toll oh, already. No. So there was that concern. <laughs> yeah. The other thing was um, just the, um, uh, how do I say this? The technical uh, technological limitations of the time. They probably mm -hmm. could have done a split screen. They do it in another couple of years uh, later on. But um, that question becomes redundant, though, because Hartnell would be taking a week-long vacation during the filming of episode two. <laughs> Meaning that in the original, the Abbot only appears in a brief pre-film sequence in that episode, uh. and then we don't get him again until episode three. The other reason the stories are so different is uh, Lucarotti and script editor Donald Tosh fought about the script on many things. One of them being whether the viewers should know the Doctor wasn't the Abbot or whether they should know from the very start. Lucarotti wanted the audience to know, as they do in the novel, and Tosh wanted it left uncertain. Well, Lucarotti couldn't have his hijinks that he wanted without revealing it. Exactly. There you go. So the story that we get on screen is the result of Tosh 
extensively rewriting Lugarati's scripts, and even to the point of taking a co-writing credit on the last episode, and it's to this day unclear whether or not Lucarati had his name removed from the credits for that one, because, of course, the episode doesn't exist, we don't have a visual record, mm. and there's no paperwork from that time either. So, yeah. What we have here is an adaptation of a much earlier version of the script. Mm. One before all those changes were made. This is the story we would have gotten <clears throat> if Donald Tosh hadn't been quite so much an asshole about it, and if Harnell hadn't taken that week-long vacation for episode two. Mm. <clears throat> would have had the Doctor all the way through, would have had the Abbot all the way through. And I have to tell you, it's kind of... Uh, the view of fans of this story tends to be that it's like uh, Stephen King's novel, The Shining, and the Stanley Kubrick movie that's based on it. They both have their fans. Both our fans are very happy with them. They're not at all the same story. <clears throat> at all. In fact, one last thing that really bothers me about the novelization, of course there are a few things to do, is the fact that there is a final speech that the Doctor gives to Stephen in episode four. It's one of the most beautiful scenes in Doctor Who. It's not in this version because it doesn't have to be. Mm. In fact, I'll play it for you later because it's it's just Hartnell acting his ass off and being mm. wonderful. But it's because the story ends very differently. So we'll talk about this. Oh yeah, <clears throat> yeah. Well, here we have a happy ending. There's no happy end. I mean, Everyone apart from the fact that everyone dies. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, there's still a massacre at the end. But the Doctor and Stephen have done all they can. In the televised version, Stephen is of the mind that the Doctor could do a lot more, and the Doctor refuses, and they part company. Oh, briefly. Oh. Very briefly. And then we get the new companion, but God, let's talk about that later, shall we? Alright, let's get started on this. Um, hmm, Jenny, sorry, go ahead. I'll say up front, I have some Huguenot ancestors, so I have some bias that I bring to the table. Good. So, Perfect. <laughs> open disclaimer. Filthy Protestant. I'm under okay. the impression that there are enough people who say Huguenot and enough who say Huguenot that in any given situation you're saying it the wrong way. And well, French, for course. the names I wasn't familiar with before this book, I don't know how to pronounce them properly. So that's all my upfront apologies. <laughs> that's fine. I'll just adapt okay. those for myself as well. And go. I have a degree in French, and even I have trouble with some of this pronunciation. Well, how much familiarity did the two of you have with the story of the St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre? I, I knew more about that than I do about certainly the episode. Just what I know from this story, or these two versions of the story. How about you, yeah. Danny? None. I started to look it up in case I needed to know, and then I decided that I didn't want to know because I wanted to take it as the narrative was going to deliver it. Mm, good. And what about like Catherine de Medici and some of the major figures in here? I knew Polini. about the Medici's a bit okay. and what they were trying to do. So my question is, could you easily follow it and did you care? Because if I didn't know who half a dozen of these people were already, I think I would have found it really quite tedious. And I found it fairly <laughs> tedious, as even knowing who like the major international level players were. So how how did it hit you as a story? Okay. I'm gonna ask I'm gonna pass that to Jenny because I know how I'm gonna I mean, obviously massacre <clears throat> indicates that something's not going to pan out well at the end. Shucks. Yes. <laughs> Yeah, I would say that your assessment is accurate, that without knowing a lot of the background of this, I was 
pretty bored <laughs> and really? confused. Yeah, for sure. Even with that lovely dramatis personae list in the front? But it's kind of like, you know, you see Shakespeare in the beginning. Everyone's got a really complicated name, and you're like, all right, we're going to try and remember this, and then things take off, and you're kind of getting it. I mean, I always assume that I'll just pick it up as, as things go, but... Yeah. I mean, it's... I don't know. Essentially, it's a narrative of... Um, what's the, the classic, you know, mixed identity trope, which we all know how it's going to end. So I was waiting for oh, something yeah. kind of more exciting to happen, and it oh, yeah. sort of didn't. Um, so... I don't know. Not, not, not my fave first okay. impression. <laughs> all right. All right. And yours was, of course, as soon as I told you the name of it, you were like, oh my God, that. Yeah, I was really <clears throat> interested. I don't know a huge amount of the massacre itself and more like sort of a larger story that it's part of. So I had sort of an effective feeling of foreboding throughout. They talk about what day is it? Oh. God, it's really hot here. The wedding guests are in town. It's coming. It's coming. Mm -hmm. But I brought that in with me. And yeah. I'm not sure if I would, if it would have it been built by just the, the book itself. Yeah. yeah I agree. Because it is this big momentous slaughter. Momentous slaughter. Um, and I actually didn't know which way they were going to end the book. Because you, know, you can sometimes end this on a lark of, oh, then he saved everyone. That's now different in history. And that didn't actually yeah, happen. No. Or it could have gone in the direction that Cotton did with the Romans, where, haha, the doctor actually caused it. <laughs> yes. And I would be somewhat annoyed if it was a farce oh, where the no. doctor accidentally got everybody killed. Oh, and I was glad they did not go in that direction. That would be horrible. Like, the, you know, he, oh, he accidentally killed the Admiral. Oh, my God. And, yes, I'm glad that it, it was more tasteful than that. Well, that's... But I wonder how much of what I brought in with me made it mm. more interesting. Okay. And I would, I would say the same thing about my interest in it. Because of course I had listened to the audio of the story. It's one of my one of my favorite historicals, but for very different reasons than this book is one of my better preferred novelizations. It's not my favorite by any means, but it's still it's my favorite Lucarati. Yeah, I'm I'm much happier with this book than I am with. Marco Polo, and <laughs> a the gentle aspects. Coup, a gentle coup of acquiescence of, oh, it's the best of that pile of shit. Yeah, I interpreted Jenny's response. Just a little so. bit. I mean, seriously. Well, sometimes it's in, in what I don't say. Um, <laughs> well, it's nice kind of it. Yes. <laughs> Attempted diplomacy and just a fail. That's fine. So this I'm is 87. What year is the Virgin novel that we read? The Plotters. It was about oh, the, the Plotters. Plot. That was written in 93. So my impression was that the Plotters was that writer trying to do what he would have liked to have done with this story. Yeah, exactly so many common right. elements. It's like 30 years later, but, but it, in terms of all the places in time and space the doctor could go, mm -hmm. it's pretty close. And have a lot of the same elements mm. that they open in the body tavern, yes. and then the, you know, the use of passages, and one's in London and one's in Paris, mm. a lot of the sort of similar motifs. It's just... Um, the Plotters was much more of a conventional full novel, where yeah. this is and a comedy. This yes, yes, this is much, much more busy and much thinner. Yeah, if that makes sense. Which is weird because it's even busier than the televised version. Oh, I'm saying if I didn't have some hat to hang, some hat of previous knowledge of the story to hang on. I'm going to completely abandon the hanging the hat metaphor here. <laughs> if I didn't have some figures for frame of reference, I think I would have completely given up on keeping up with who was affiliated with what household mm -hmm. and what particular dignitary and not cared much at all. But I thought that in The Plotters, the author did a nice job of explaining how we can't just say, well, you know, 
Were I there at that time, I would have said it's all very silly to squabble about these theological ideas in the political arena. That's a matter of private conscience. And I thought that the author of the plot did a really good job of showing how the politics oh, yeah. and religion and, and even ethnic and family affiliations of the time made that a nearly impossible solution. And I thought this book fell more into the... Well, why can't we just all get along trope yeah. of, well, you know, these modern people would know how to uh, how to fix all these problems, how to resolve all of these disputes. Mm -hmm. And it seemed, on the one hand, weirdly complicated <clears throat> in how it went into sort of inter-household intrigues, but on the other hand, lazily 20th century. Condescending. In its, yeah, and it's way that it dealt with the sort of the long game of what's going yeah. on in the 16th century. And I thought that too, and that's unusual because Luke Garotti's a big history buff, so he should know, obviously, because he wrote three damn historicals. But yeah, there well, you get the idea that Stevens being naive that mm. he thinks this is you know well he says something like I'm not very religious and I'm whatever he doesn't use the term apolitical but I don't have a stake in all of this right. he he is shown as being quite in over his head in that way but there's not really a good explanation of why yeah sort of like the tide that he's being swept swept along in. he is much more swept in the tide in the televised version and much more over his head uh, mainly because the doctor drops him right in the drink. But, uh, Jenny, uh, you were going to say something, I thought. Well, when you were saying about Lugarati being um, really a history buff, I couldn't help but at times feel like he had had gone in and plumbed the historical... Oh, what's the word I'm looking for? There's a fancy pants word that I learned from undergraduate that'll make me sound like I'm cool. Um... <laughs> Oh, like the location, is it? Milieu! There milieu. it is. Yes. Um, it's like he'd gone into the 1500s, you know, cultural milieu of, of France here and been like, ooh, okay, chamber pots and then cold wine and dog carts and good, I, I'm going to make a scene now, we're done. But the plotters and, did that so much more richly. And I wasn't a yeah. huge fan of the plotters, but the plotters made you feel much more filth and danger, yes. I think. Whereas this, Whereas this was, it's alluded to at the beginning, right. but it doesn't persist throughout the story. It's a strange uh, sensation of the old adage of being told and not shown. It's like, oh, we landed in a garbage pile. Yeah. Like, hey, y'all, yeah. you should know French was dirty. <laughs> and like that first But then after that, it's not bad. It's like, we yeah. went to the town. Here's what everybody was wearing. They all had braids and this. And I'm like, did they all? And then he's yeah. like, and everyone was not walking under, they were either walking under the eaves or in the middle of the street. And I'm like, why the fuck would you go out and mention that? Other than to tell everyone, hey, we're in the 1500s. Yeah. I know course. about chamber pots yeah, exactly. out the window. Exactly. I knew what he was referring to. And then they even had yeah. to beat us over the head with it further, you know, with Stephen in the next. Oh, God, we nearly had a wine catastrophe. But everything's fine. <laughs> yes, we're fine. Uh, dear listeners, we're fine. Uh, they even had dear to listeners, go, send more wine. <laughs> more <laughs> Tony's sipping like a, an infant from the bottle. Oh, okay. Um, or like... Donald Trump like from a, a water bottle. Double from the <laughs> Both hands. Both hands. Uh, okay, sorry. No, you're fine. That they had to then do the Stephen thing in the next moment to, like, confirm that. And mm. I had to kind of, I don't know, almost remind myself back, like, well, maybe this is for a young audience who's uh, learning about this. It and is. he's going to just be very sort of cotton dry about it. Like, hey, yeah. kids, this is how things work. I don't think it's people pissed in pots. Well, target, um, <laughs> target books were always intended for 12 to 17-year-olds. Uh, yeah. Yeah, but... Not very immersive. No, no for a it's, few it's pages. Not. It's really not. I, I, I thought he was going to do a good job setting the scene historically. It's like I said, maybe not very immersive in terms of language. Mm -hmm. But after that, it's so much 
nuts and bolts of who said what to whom when and what house that you sort of lose that sensibility. Which is what I hated, you remember, about Marco Polo, because he would do all these re reported dialogue mm -hmm. bits. Yes, that's right. <clears throat> he does it a few times here, that but not right. nearly as much, because he's trying to make a point with this book, mm -hmm. which is my original script was so much better than what actually went out. Mm -hmm. I mean, you could go a couple of different directions with a story like this. You could pick a side yeah. and have the other side twirl mustaches. And you've got a lot to work with here because yes. the Guises are like the worst aristocratic family ever. Yes. Kill, 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 fuck, 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 kill, kill, kill some more. And you've got a lot of juicy material <laughs> to work with about how how terrible this family is. That's, so a red, that's, that's, that's the mustache twirling approach. That's the mom, right? Um, yeah. that, well, that's the family. That's the aristocratic family that... Well, this is Mary Stewart's mother's side of the family... Even though they don't talk about Mary Queen of Scots the, in this. There's like Henry's mom who's coming yeah. in. Yes. This is the, this is the family who's heavily Medici. influencing yeah. okay. her. Yeah, okay. the Queen and you've got on, on the side, on the Huguenot side, who, who is trying to influence her, continue to influence her towards a more reconciliatory view of, of, of the regions and of religion. Mm -hmm. And um, then the Guises um, are the... I would say Catholic, more Catholic absolutists. They're terrible Catholics in terms of day-to-day -day life, but, yeah, yeah. but but are pushing her towards the towards the direction of a complete split and war instead of mm -hmm. reconciliation. But they're actually not that interesting, no. and the Guises are only kind of mentioned in passing. You could also go in the direction of um, the idea, or you, you must ask for the Huguenots and say, well, they seem like they're just sort of people who want to practice their own religion and and lead their own lives, but they started talking really loudly and often about their new doctrine that it's okay to kill the monarch yes. if, <laughs> if the monarch doesn't obey God and we get to say what obeying God means, and they're creating seemingly a civil war out of nothing. Mm -hmm. But they don't go in that direction either, but nor is there sort of a sympathetic... Briefly, they mentioned it in the book. Yeah, yeah, but <clears throat> there's no emotional oomph No, to you're that. right. I can't tell yeah. who I'm supposed to empathize. But there's also yeah. not a sort of reconciliatory tone of tragedy wherein you see yeah. that these two sides both have their legitimate complaints, both have their strong points. Isn't it tragic that they at this time could not reconcile? Yes. Eh, no, it's just In fact, the only character there. you can feel any sympathy for is Anne Chaplet. Mm -hmm. And that's Indeed. because you're meant to, yeah. <clears throat> because she was being considered as a possible companion, or at least when she was in this script. But her, your sympathy is all for her as an individual, not right. for her place as a Huguenot in Paris in this Catholic no, area. Right. There's, it, not, it, it doesn't populate to sort of her side of the political situation. Yeah, when I, I read in your notes that she was being groomed for a future companion, then it suddenly made sense, because mm -hmm. the whole time I was like, what is the point of this character? She's yeah. just an object kind of being tossed around, and I don't even know why anybody gives a shit about her. I thought it was I because just... every book had to have an adult having a sexual flirtation with a teenager. With a fucking 15-year-old. Yes. <laughs> I just kept track of the wenches. I did a wench count. Uh, there's ten times she's called a wench in here. It's actually not bad. Uh, as far as worse. wenches go, yeah. Uh, right, the wench count. But, wench wording. Uh, I was like, what's going on? I just didn't, like, I didn't even understand why they were that mad that she had been abducted, other than the fact that she is a Huguenot. That she may than, have overheard something yeah. that she would lead the them plot. to think of yeah, the plot. She knew that there was a master in the works. That was mentioned, like, once, I, it, and I was just so confused few, uh, Well, it's it was, in there a few times, but it's like, it's hard to know. It wasn't emphasized, like, a lot, I feel like, in terms of the tension. You're right. And then yeah. it was just her, like, running away with Stephen, 
and sleeping awkwardly in a graveyard, which is yes. like this weird sort of sexy dark scene. And she's like decorating yes. with flowers. Yes. Like, Why the fuck is she decorating? What's going on? Not in the televised um, version. Very <laughs> so that that was strange. But when you read, when you said that they were trying to set her up, I was like, oh, okay, fine. Yeah, I accept it. You know, but setting her up to be sort of the f- aggressor of flirtation was just kind of queasy and beguiling. Un- and a month of news of Roy Moore, it was really not what I was yeah, up for. <laughs> I understand that. Oh. I understand. So there's a lot more juice to be milked from this story about the idea of the wedding week and that the Huguenots are aristocrats are in town. There are some Huguenots in Paris, but mm-hmm. mostly they're further south. They're around Navarre. It's practically a separate, separate kingdom. They're in town as the sort of the the guests that are treated with maximum hostile passive aggression. Yes. The wedding celebrations involve things like some kind of fun game that ends up mysteriously with all the Huguenot ladies sitting in the Catholic Lord's lap and there's this like weird Weird uh, sort of sexual menace. Mm-hmm. See, that was a the celebrations. Yes. So the wedding goes through, the wedding happens, and then Henry of Navarre's uh, weird Huguenot friends want to hang out in the honeymoon suite all week, and there's also this weird sexual oh, stuff Lord. going on where at the time it's not uncommon for people to witness the consummation right. to the marriage That's can't right. be annulled. But then that. his like his bros hang out all week long oh, in the suite. Lord. They actually don't go away. So there are all these weird, uncomfortable things going on. Mm. Marguerite is uh, actually kind of carrying on with one of the geezers on the side. That's her <laughs> true love. Mm. Francis Walsingham is the English ambassador. He's not that important yet. Right. But during the massacre, um, his house, which is the, functionally the embassy, is going to be where all the English Protestants hole up and they can protect some Huguenots. They're afraid right. to get too many because they all get killed. But that's basically why he is so hot to kill Mary Stuart a few years later. Oh. The emotional reason. There are more political reasons than that. But like that, that kind of fires the rage of kill Mary Stuart. And, and of course, none of that, none of that in here. Like none there's a that. lot of sex and violence and tension and menace to talk about here. Except... And well, you understand why yeah. we can't. I mean, why he can't. Yeah. I mean, yeah. So I was, can't. I was disappointed yeah. because you had to actually go really dark with this without being especially explicit at all. Which is, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Yeah, like to, to jump ahead slightly. Um, the one, well, I think there were two moments mm-hmm. I enjoyed in this story. <laughs> two <laughs> moments yeah. of the whole book. There, there was where. One place that I really was got super interested in, I suppose I should, it's back farther. I mean, this, this guy, Henry, he's got tuberculosis. He's dying. And every time he tried to do some sort of thing, he would end up in this coughing fit yeah. and, like, half, hack himself to death. And that created, when I think back on it, an interesting, like, oh, shit, like, this person is, is trying to exert some sort of uh, narrative pull, but literally can't because yeah. they're about to die. Exactly. And then the mom would <clears throat> kind of swoop in. And there is this sad little part on my PDF. Is, I don't. I should start writing this in chapter, but it's not page numbers on these pages. One twenty three. Let me find what chapter this is. It's in chapter sixteen. Chapter sixteen. Like about three pages in. No, four pages in. Um, where. Henry and the mom are are fighting a bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
about oh, what's yes. going to happen. And the mom is, is trying to assert... <laughs> the mom. Catherine. Catherine is trying to assert her will, and Henry is is for once trying to stand up, but then it says that he, he replied, but suddenly his lungs were on fire, and he's coughing. Oh. And then... The queen mother drew his head to her bosom, their little one there, she said, as she caressed his back. And there's a sudden switch from this animosity she yeah. had to this tenderness. Mm -hmm. and that I thought was really fascinating. Yeah. Suddenly, yeah. at page 124 out of 133, I wanted to read more about the story of these two people. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And this, yeah. you know, by, by turns... Um, Aggression. It seems like this woman is extremely domineering and willful and using her son as a puppet. And then also that motherly tenderness and probably guilt and regret that her child is dying. Yeah. Like, yeah. that was very poignant to me all mm -hmm. of a sudden. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. There's all this interesting historical juice in there about, on one hand, she's this infamous domineering mother who keeps putting her teenage sons in power as they die one after the other. On the other hand, she's just... <laughs> They're all yeah. stupid and evil anyway, uh, yeah, so yeah. she is kind of the competent adult in the situation. <laughs> yeah, you get had a glimpse of that, and then it doesn't really pan out in the story. No. Yeah. She's, um, she's kind of like Cersei. I'm sorry, I did a Game of Thrones reference, and I'm realizing that isn't going over yeah, this right. Yeah, but yeah she's very much like Cersei, that her okay. kids are all being groomed for power, but none of them is really equal to it. And she's the only one who's truly equal to it. And once again, historically, Catherine de Medici is a fabulous tackling supervillain. <laughs> With a lot of really sympathetic undertones as well. And actually, I was actually delighted that the, the CW show <laughs> <laughs> they cast Megan Follows in this character. Mm -hmm. And I thought that was kind of delightful to have Anne Shirley <laughs> sort of supermodel sort of oh or something. Oh my god. Yes. <laughs> Anne of like, Avonlea was Catherine de Medici? Yes, yes. <laughs> um <laughs> But oh, once again, if I hadn't brought it in, I'm not even sure I would have picked up on that or noticed that. But, like, hints of better stories you could be reading. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, uh, which that without even getting into the stories he's free to make up, just the stories that historically exist are already there. That is, yeah, that's true. That Now that you're saying all this, I'm like, oh, right. Here's the hint of the story that actually is there, which is why, it, to me, it's so sad. I'm like, why yeah. can't we get that story here? Like, yeah. Lugarati, why didn't you do this? And instead, we just have, like, well, I'll do a missing identity for oh, wow. And I'm like, okay, great. And Stop see, first. my reaction is, why couldn't we have gotten this story rather than the one that we actually got on screen? Mm. Even though the one on screen is really good, it doesn't have half the political intrigues in it. It doesn't have half the stuff of... I mean, you basically... Oh, God. Yeah. What is it? <laughs> yeah, you're introduced to these characters and you see them moving around and talking to each other about Protestantism and Catholicism, I but... I thought the mistaken identity story was amusing in its way. Mm -hmm. But that's kind of damning with St. Grace. Yes. Yes. And it's better here in the book than it is in the televised version because in the televised... <laughs> Jesus, God. All right, I better unpack this. This is what happens. <laughs> All right, they go to the bar. <laughs> they arrive in France. They go to the bar. They get their drinks. The doctor says, I'm off to talk <laughs> to Charles. There's a lot more detail than I we were in for. Yeah, exactly. They, he goes off to talk to Charles. This whole thing about apothecaries having to be Catholic in order to practice isn't in the televised version. It's a major thing here. So I was very appreciative of that. Yeah, I thought it was um, he goes and talks to him, says, hey, I want to talk to you about your stuff, etc., etc., etc. Stephen ends up 
oh god, does that happen at the end of episode one? He ends up waiting for the doctor and cannot, um, can't wait there because the toxin is wrong or what have you. And then you're already in the episode two, where he's staying the night with the uh, Huguenots. Mm. And he sees the abbot coming into the house and thinks it's the doctor. And they say, oh, that's your friend the doctor? But that's the abbot. That's our sworn enemy. You're a traitor. And it goes along those lines for the entire rest of the story where Stephen is considered a traitor. Mm -hmm. Because he's constantly trying to get to the abbot, thinking it's the doctor. When he finally does, in the third episode, he knows it's not. Mm -hmm. Because the abbot is so completely different. In this book, when they finally meet, Stephen is like, oh, that wily old bastard. He actually knows what he's doing with this whole disguise thing. It's completely different. Mm. And then episode four, after the Doctor has been gone, all we've had is the Abbot in episodes two and three. The Doctor suddenly shows up. And do we as the audience know he's the Abbot? We do. The abbot? Okay. Well, we know that the Doctor... Do we doctor... <laughs> well, yeah, because the Abbot's been killed... Under different circumstances, so that that can be blamed on the Huguenots. Um, Stephen thinks he's lost the doctor. Doctor turns up and says, oh no, I'm fine, dear boy, let's go. And Stephen says, wait, what about Anne? And he says, oh, send her, we'll send her off back to the house and she'll be fine. And it's only after they take off in the TARDIS that the doctor tells Stephen what's happening we get woodcuts of, original woodcuts of the massacre going on. So you get graphics and you get this, on the soundtrack you hear screams and all this terribleness. And Stephen says to the doctor, you could have done something, you could have saved her, you decided you that history was more important. Wherever this TARDIS ends up next, I'm leaving. Hmm. And they land, he does, and the doctor has this, beautiful speech thinks he's alone TARDIS door opens and there's fucking Dodo Chaplet who's mistaken the TARDIS as a police box Stephen comes rushing up to her and behind her and you know tries to get her to go out and they introduce themselves and she says her last name is Dodo Chaplet oh Chaplet Chaplet it must it might actually be Anne's descendant maybe she did survive ha 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 unlike here where we know for sure it happened we know yeah, for sure that Dodo made it's made explicit whereas in the televised version it's like oh well she could have been alive dear boy everything forgiven hmm and we have a new companion hmm oh, it's so, the reason why I say all that <laughs> is because I wish this version had been the version we got. Mm. Except for that speech, which I still want to play for you at some point. I can see why they, for the show, may have made that decision about Stephen, sort of compressing that tension, whereas here it's a lot more complicated about what yeah. he knows, but then the Huguenots are like keeping the doctor sort of from him, but he like sort of knows about it. It's a little muddy. Um, I can see why, for the sake of the show, they did that, but it, it is more simplified. Yeah. I thought the two effective narrative creations of Menace were the first time Stephen hears the bell, he thinks it's a toxin, and he'll know it's a Vesper, he'll know it's a toxin. Like, yeah. there, will be, there will be occasion for that, and then when he hears it, 
at curfew every night. There was an effective sense of menace that you know, there's a curfew. If you're on the street, you're going to be arrested. Good God, what's been going on? Yes. The curfew is harsh. The massacre is coming. And I thought that actually worked in terms of marking time. See, that's interesting because when I saw that, I didn't have a sense of that with anything out of the ordinary. I was just like, oh, I guess this is what's happening in France now. Okay. Like, I didn't know what to make of that. And that's the other unusual thing about the televised version. Each episode is one day. So the, each episode ends with the toxin. Yeah, which is interesting. That was a nice countdown of the clock. Oh, yeah. We as one of the masters coming. And the second is what started off as more slapstick and then got darker was the um, uh, locksmith. Oh yeah. oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. the description of not knowing what's going on. And, oh, let's see if I can find the... Description here where um, and the doctor having to exercise. He yelped and leapt back. back. What is it, fellow? It set my arm on fire inside. Show me, Paul said. Inside my arm with the cramping of the muscle. That's actually not a bad description for someone who never experienced yeah. that yeah. shock before. And then there was a sense of menace when the actual, uh, when the real Abbot is uh, attempting to exercise oh, yeah. him. And then later we're told that he has signed an order of exorcism. He's going to do it himself. Like, good God, what is he going to do? Yeah. He's going to set him on fire. Exactly. He's going to torture the devil out of him. So there is some sense of relief. And the actual doctor rescues him. Yes. I thought those two worked well. And again, plot point that doesn't ever happen. Because the TARDIS is never discovered in the televised version. Uh, but that description of the locksmith electrocuting himself and then him later being the dungeon gave a sort of sense of physicality mm-hmm. that a lot of other authors have done really well in capturing someone's disorientation or physical distress right. that comes up so rarely in this novel that when it does come up it's effective mm-hmm. but it's absence from the rest of the story I thought left it as fairly detached. Yeah, I would give it that. You're right. That. that little scene shows that Lugarati can do that. Um, but, but he just doesn't bother to do the rest yeah. of that. Yeah. This, this is actually the other place that I liked was that right. very first page of the chapter 12 burned at the stake where the yeah. abbot's coming to to uh, do whatever it is to, to, to the TARDIS. Intimidated uh, by the abbot's fire and burned some eloquence, uh, blah, blah, blah. The king gave his consent to burn the TARDIS at the stake, although he insisted he should be present. The other degree that added that it could not be burned immediately. Why not? The king was peeved. I must gird the armor of the Lord around his feeble vassal before I confront Lucifer and his demons in their infernal lair. The abbot rhetorized, quite so. <laughs> I, that, that made me laugh. Unable to think of anything else. Unable to think of anything else. Like, quite so. Yeah, after that. Um, that, what is that word I'm thinking of turgid speech yes uh, I would love I to have heard Hartnell deliver some of those lines yeah, that would have been marvelous hilarious I but, like some of the switch identity and you know, Duvall is confused about who is doing what and Lawrence is also confused about who is playing what and who's trouble crossing whom I thought that that could have actually played out very nicely on the screen with good actors but I was reading a script that would be mediocre unless it was brought to life by really good cast, but it sounds like this isn't the script that you actually saw. No, not at all. As a matter of fact... What we want doesn't exist. No, it doesn't, because Gaston, for instance, in the uh, televised version, is constantly yelling at Stephen, calling him a traitor. That's not the character we get on the page at all. I I like the character. I ended up feeling bad for Duvall, actually, after a while. Yeah. Even though I didn't know a thing about him, and he's a, a caricature of... 
you know, of, of a person, I still was like, he's really getting the runaround. Yeah. Yeah. two people. And he's just legitimately confused. Yeah. And I, yeah. I was imagining the person he's having to Doing his damnedest. Yeah. Like, he's just trying to be a good employee. He's yeah. just like your everyday man in France trying to, you know, do For shit. Him and for instead, him. he's got, you know, this crazy Abbott and then the doctor, which, I mean, fuck if you have to deal with him. Oh, yeah. He's crazy as well in his own ways. Like, <laughs> I did actually feel kind of bad for him. Oh, yeah. So do we think Stephen achieved any personality in this one? Um, I keep waiting for it to happen. There's a spark <laughs> or two or three in each book, and yet it never quite catches fire. Well, apparently you go to astronaut school to learn how to fence. And um, to act. And to act. <laughs> and I was like, wow, this is like some really incredible astronaut. I thought that might have been a Mr. Sulu reference. And he loves oh, yeah, that's a so there's that. I mean, that's part of his personality, right? He goes in for the children. Um, I didn't. I didn't know who Stephen was. I opened oh, this book right. and I'm like, "Where's Barbara and Ann?" Because that's the last. That's right. <laughs> I'm so one. sad. That's right. I, I forgot. That's I, the last yeah. time you saw them. I this is the last time I saw them. The quick, quick, sad death yeah. and Susan, right? Yeah. Um. Goodbye. And I was just like, "Who the fuck is Stephen?" But then I was like, "Well, it's sort of a sad replacement for the others. He doesn't even do any sort of mass heroics." I noticed he didn't even ask where Vicky was. Yeah, Vicky, that was the other one. I was like, who's the other one? The other one. The other one. I don't know. The companions. Yeah. That's, well, <laughs> here's a weird thing. Steven does kind of get a little more personality in this, but weirdly it's at the expense of the previous book. Mm-hmm. Because they sh- he and the Doctor okay. should still be in mourning over... Sarah, because yeah. she just died. Yeah. Right, exactly. <laughs> you don't need to know. Trust me, but okay, fine. Sarah, it who asked for one story. Right, and I was right. listening to that audio. I was listening to the audio well, on the way over. Who nursed him back from the brink of death? Yes, theoretically, yes. And yeah. Who was also a teenager? He kind of flirted with. Yeah, yeah. exactly. There was Kevin. One of these we've, go by. We've had two new companions since Vicky, mm, and both okay. have died. You missed the plot. Right through him when yeah. Vicky was disguised as a twelve or thirteen-year-old boy, oh. and. King James the first or sixth, depending on you count, was so hot and heavy after her slash him. I had a big fire to be talking about this. Do we have one novel that doesn't have how did she react to that <laughs> in the novel though? Like well, I mean chased by this person, like oh, as a, very as chastely. A <laughs> she didn't oh, allow herself. Okay. Right. She did not un- Matter of fact horror, I suppose. <laughs> she yeah. did she did not unfurl her tender treasures, shall we say. <laughs> I think that's a Shakespeare. What year was that, was. that was sixteen oh five, wasn't it? Sixteen oh seven. The Guy Fox plot. I mean, yeah. when was the actual novel? <laughs> yeah. 1993. Okay, I can see that. I was like, they did that in like the 60s? No, <laughs> no, no way it wasn't a novelization. Right, it was right. an original book that we read for the, uh, was it the Halloween special? I think so. Yeah. I feel like... So the Halloween special yeah. was... It was a bit. Yeah. <laughs> you know, Guy Fox masks. Oh. Yeah. Um, Do what now? Oh no no no! That was the Patreon yeah. only, no, which only three people now have the uh, right to listen to because we only have three patrons. So if you'd like to hear that special, you'll need to give us some money. Anyway, yes. <laughs> well, I think I'm just getting husky because I'm coming down with something. Oh, sorry. Of 
all of the books that feature both Stephen and Vicky, they would have some amusing verbal sparring that made me optimistic yes. about Stephen and Vicky being individually developed, and they would develop Vicky more and Stephen hardly at all. We have this at the beginning, yeah. where the Doctor is sort of giving him an info dump. Uh, in 1563, by decree, all religious prejudice was abolished, and everyone had the right to practice according to his or her beliefs, the Doctor stated. But in 1567, it was said that this pretext of religious freedom was undermined King's authority. Really, Stephen said. I didn't think of anything else. And there was all kind of amusing moments like that. It's like, is that so? Fascinating. And you didn't give him some personality. I couldn't tell if that made him just, like, bored, or if he was just stupid. Like, I, I, I thought it was sarcasm. Stephen, it's 601. Like, is he just, like, a yeah. jock? Like, he's like, his job. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Exactly but so I thought right. it was some sort of amusing sarcasm, his exasperation, mm-hmm. wanting to just get down to business. Yeah. But then it wasn't worn out yeah. thereafter. And I wish I could tell you that Stephen would, you know... Unflower unf- his tender treasures to us at some point, but I want to put science around. I, yeah. I want him to use his knowledge. Write a Roman novel called Tender Treasures. Stephen's <laughs> Tender Treasures. Stephen's Tender Treasures. And how do you know I haven't already? Oh, God, it will be about like his. Are going to put that on the teenage yes. objects? It will be about the teenage uh, objects of his adoration. Stephen's teenage treasures will no. be like high school class, and he turns the screen and he watches them through the window with binoculars. God. Oh my god, we're gonna lose people. He didn't do anything, yet still kind of inappropriate. And once again, I haven't seen episodes with him, so maybe the actor's perfect, but someone did make one uh, did make a crack from the stage cover the TARDIS about maybe Steve will get a personality. No. Really? Yeah. <laughs> no. Well, that's they really did. They did. Apparently it's not just us. Okay. No, okay. it isn't. Well, that's because Peter Purvis isn't at Chicago Tarvis this year. If he had been, they wouldn't have said it. Boy, but I think. Alive? Oh, yeah. Oh, the actor's wow. still alive, yeah. Okay. Well, having never beheld him. No, I think he would agree with you. We did not insult you, sir. No, I think he would agree with you. I think he would agree that Stephen has the personality of a wet blanket. Well, not even a wet blanket because that implies that he... A space blanket, yes. Yes. A fencing acting space blanket. There's a long history of actors who transcend bad material. There's a whole argument that the Star Wars trilogy that... Oh, the no. actors in the original trilogy, especially in A New Hope, transcend dialogue, transcend the clunkiness of the dialogue in a way that the, the prequel actors were not able to do. They were fine, but they weren't able to rise above in the same way. So that is true. I think maybe he could rise above, but I haven't seen that's, so. that's just it. I think he does. In the televised version of this, he does, because it's his show, basically, for two episodes. If I see an episode with... The human who portrays Stephen, and will I lose my amateur status? No. If I see three, will I lose my amateur status? Are you are you are you are you trying to get a pay raise? No, no, no. no. I'm actually curious. I've literally never seen the guy's face. Oh, that's right. That's right. Well, here's the thing. The next story. If you're if you're if you're imagining these actors, is it a better novel? If you're imagining the performances. Let me think about Even it. Even if it's, it's sort of a lost episode where you haven't actually seen these performances. Does that give it an added layer of richness mm. or nuance? With Peter Purvis is doing these scenes rather than the ones that he did. <sighs> I think I, that in itself is an answer. Yeah, I'm having trouble answering that. Because, ugh. I can see someone playing this very well. Mm-hmm. It could be. 
Um, I don't know. I honestly don't. Mm. Because he, uh, he does the anger, the righteous anger, really well, but there's no righteous anger for him to do in this version of it. Yeah. There's more his, you know, just being happy with the doctor being so, you know, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? The doctor is so in their face about being an imposter and all of that. And he seems to enjoy that aspect of it. I don't know. That is a hard one. That is a very difficult one. But we keep talking about imagining a better episode or imagining a better book. And yet, we don't have either. We don't. We really don't, which is a shame because I like this version of this book, but and I like the original, and I it's odd for me to say that about a Lucarati script, even though the Aztecs I really like too, mm. but for very different reasons. It gives Babs a lot to do. Mm. Babs shines in that story. I did think about how if they'd written this as a story with her, she would have known exactly what was going on, oh, exactly yeah. what to do, and I think, like I said, that not the whole fan theory going on that. Um, that the plotters was partly an attempt to do this kind of story better. Yeah, and it, it makes works. sense that a story with Barbara in it would, would give her a lot more to work with because she would know what's going to happen. She wouldn't want to interfere, but then of course she would want to interfere. Yes. Where Stephen's just floating on along with his head as a balloon. And even Ian, as the heavy, kind of knows what he's up to. Yeah, because he's more intelligent than Stephen. Yeah. Right? he's more in, he's more intelligent than Stephen's pinky. Yeah. yeah, thinking of those characters, but some of the other stories, they're, you know, 30 times more interesting mm-hmm. than almost anybody else. But it's yeah. not portrayed as being clueless enough to be amusing when dumb. No, yeah. yeah. Kind of medium dumb. Well, we, and I wish they'd kind of pursue that because John Peel did in the last book. You remember that one exchange we like so much where uh, Stephen says something along the lines of, well, I hate to seem stupid, Doctor, and the, the Doctor says... Oh, don't apologize to your boy. You can't help it. <laughs> well, and he showed that he can be smart about technical yes. and mechanical and engineering issues. Yeah. Which yeah. makes sense. And that he can mm-hmm. be quick-witted verbally. Right. He just doesn't have a lot of historical context. No, no, no. Which is why, you know, in the, in the televised version, when he gets angry and leaves and then comes back, mm-hmm. you're like, you feel it. No, that would be actually something. Because yeah. he had been very reactive throughout the whole episode, and then suddenly he's like, "No, I'm going to assert some sort of decision here and yeah. follow through on it." And then that's throughout all of this, the thing that I don't know uh, constantly frustrates me about the, the large Doctor Who narrative is sometimes the Doctor seems like this very immovable, static character that doesn't change or respond to anybody and it's very frustrating to me so I'm like I mean, I'm, he's not human so I guess like when I ask are you human that the answer is no but I'm like seriously like why don't you give a shit why don't you do something why don't you act different yes. instead of being this insufferable know-it-all who seems to not care about anybody and very occasionally in some of these books he does and then it's a moment of like okay maybe I care about you but then the ones where he's just like well I knew it all along and I'm just like well okay like what it, it, sometimes it seems to me I'm like oh what an insufferable fate Yes, like, and it can be, especially in stories like this where you've you're basically in the back seat to the doctor. But if Stephen were to do that, and the doctor is to give that speech you talk about, that would be one of those moments. Oh yes, oh yes. Um, here's the thing: this story had an amazing cast of actors. Uh, it had Leonard Sachs in it. It had Andre Morel in it as the Colony. 
it had an amazing actress as Catherine de' Medici for the one episode she's in. But she's only in one episode. That tells you something right there. Mm-hmm. That Can you not afford her? <laughs> I guess not. But I don't know what was going on there. But even I, I think they missed a trick by not having the actress who played Anne Chaplet actually go on to play Dodo Chaplin. Mm-hmm. We should have done that. And then you'd know. I actually, from the end of the book, just assumed it was the same actress. Oh. Nope. It should have been. It would have made a lot more sense. It would have made a lot more sense, I think, but instead they decided... If you learn anything from the Back to the Future Jennifer fiasco, we know. Don't change actresses. Don't change actresses. Oh, Christ. That's the last thing you want to do. (laughs) Um, Anything else you particularly want to discuss in this one? I I always get this way, but I just can't help myself. There's a couple of places where... The writing to me just gets so awkward. Please do. Um, like, on... go find again. The place of reference. When they're in the bar and they're getting the, the Huguenots and the Catholics are getting ready to have this, this little fight. Uh, and Gaston asks, how would you rather I fight the duel, Simon, with my right hand or my left? Uh, that's a perfectly fine question. I'm interested in these gestures. But the... Description of his gesture comes before that. In the, so the beginning of the paragraph is just for his part. Gaston waved each arm in the air one at a time. I'm like, what is he doing? I'm like, what is he doing? <laughs> and, then, and, I'm like, and I'm like, oh, but why on earth wouldn't you just put the dialogue before that yeah. thing so that I know like how to contextualize it? Oh yeah. Like, Maybe you know, what he's doing is ultimately writing a better episode, not a novelization at all. Yeah, I think that's exactly what he's trying to it's do. It's a different skill set. So or, that would be stage directions. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's that's actually true. Or a few pages later, um, oh, where is it? That there, Stephen is heading towards this cathedral. Um, and this is pretty early in the story, so I'm still trying to get my, my groundings, kind of. Um, Stephen heads, this is on, I don't know what page this is, uh, Kind of in chapter two, echoes of Wasi. Yeah. Second, bottom of the maybe second page in. Uh-huh. Uh, as he walked across the or the, this this cathedral, this ornate twin towers, I'm like, okay, uh-huh. I'm excited. What's this cathedral? What does it look like? As he walked across the square, he passed the three stationary carriages. Okay, one of the horses pawed the ground briefly with the hood. The second switched its tail, and as Stephen mounted the steps to the massive, intricately carved western entrance. The third horse nodded its plumed head. I'm like, I don't give a shit what the horses are doing. <laughs> oh, we're really deep in it now. Inside of the cathedral. I'm like, I like, can smell the air and see like, the birds. Yeah. I know. I was like, this is not a thing for horses. Like, what the fuck is going on? Like, what is the horse an agent? Like, why are we still? It's like, oh, God, the horse the It's like he's in the cathedral and we're still talking about the motherfucking horses. I was yeah. so confused. I actually was several times confused about where they were and would have to go back a paragraph or two. Yeah, that is true. Uh, yeah. The last thing. There's a lot of shifting around. I, I promise this is this is the last one. The dog there cards. There is a part where the uh, well, there's always the dog cards. That um, I actually looked these up because I there were several points where the way the details were written, I was like, this can't be real. Lucarati's just pooping out of its butt. But they were real. They really were these dog cards, and you know yeah. what dogs were pulling them were German shepherds. Um, oh I saw my pictures. God. Huh. I was like, okay, this is really weird and wow. amazing, but this is what they were. Fine. Um, but there was this one part where the abbot was, it said he was putting holy water on the unlit fire. And I'm like, 
you can't have an omelet fire. It's fucking a fire. It's already lit. Fire or not fire are wood, your categories. Like on the, on the, the chiller. But you can't put it on an omelet goddamn fire. Because then you can't light it. I hate to be pedantic. No, 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 no. It's little things Please. that as a... Well, it, it threw you out of the story. A writer yeah, yeah. that what? I'm like, Luke Roddy, what are you doing? Like, just think and, yeah. and don't just wait, write it. Just wait till we get to the next one. It did not. Because okay. there's some downright oh, I'm, actual I'm grammatical problems in that I'm one. real ready for that. Yeah. 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 I don't feel like it was done with loving care in a way that's no. disappointing. Because sometimes no. you can end up with a yeah. mess where someone really felt it, you could tell. They just didn't know how to write it down. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's weird. If we're talking about kind of a continuum of Lucarati's stories, and I know you'll disagree with me on this, Marco Polo is the least well-written. Uh, this one, uh, the, the Aztec... No, I'm sorry. This one is slightly better, and the Aztecs is probably the pinnacle, because mm-hmm. it really is quite good. Well, I'm sorry I missed that. Yeah. Because I would have something just to compare it to. Yeah. Is this, which, it's it's not, Allison, as you were saying before, it's not that this person can't write well. It's just very uneven, as I'm yeah. seeing through the different narratives. And oh, I do wonder yeah. what... I don't know, in, in his life and the context of the creation of these, why that happens. It's yeah. complicated it's in a way that, that doesn't pay off. Because sometimes something can be very complex and intricate in a way yeah. that is clever, even if you're not really feeling it or don't really care. Right. You can yes. see that it is actually, a, you know, an interconnected, uh, elaborate story. And this mm-hmm. was elaborate, interconnected in a way that wasn't that funny. Yeah. Wasn't that sort of, didn't have a big emotional payoff. Mm-hmm. Wasn't that historically accurate. I mean, it wasn't horrible, but it hmm. it didn't sort of tie into intricacy. Didn't tie it wasn't tied in by the author. Sort of larger themes of history, where you say, "Oh, right. that's why that thing is that way." So mm-hmm. it wasn't terrible. It just no. It it didn't have any kind of sweet spot. Right. Maybe. Right, and it really should have, given that this is the same author that gives Babs and the Doctor that whole argument about you can't change history, not one yeah. line, and it turns out that he's right. Actually, yeah. you can change history. You can. Yeah. the Doctor. He does. Oh, in which would be a huge moment, yeah. 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 But it's that. not, as it turns out, it's just he manages to just, you know, shift things a little bit. Yeah, which is interesting. I mm. And I almost didn't get that. I had to go back and read again because Catherine has that list then. And I'm like, yes. oh, okay, so she's gonna, they're gonna go ahead and kill a bunch of people anyway, yeah. despite... And the colony is one of them. The assassination not um, spurring or kicking that off. Right. I was like, oh, okay. So that it sort of wasn't yeah. that big of a blip, which was, is interesting when you think about right. larger issues of can we change like fate yeah. or time or history? Yeah. Um, apparently, according to Lucarati right here, no. That's a, yeah. a rule he's going to make in his universe. Which is bizarre and ironic given that he has completely changed oh. history mm-hmm. okay. because this isn't the story that you get. Yeah. Yeah. At all. At all. Which is uh, such a sherm. I, I sense that there are things that you like about this book, Tony. And we've been very much on the, the offensive. Um, there, there, there were things I liked. <laughs> Actually, I still do. Um, I think the Doctor is very well presented in this book. Um, and also, because I'm listening to the, uh, the Peel book again on disc, I'm getting more of a sense of this era of the fifth doctor and i do like it i do like it um and i like the narrative difference that's something else that i've always said that we've you know yeah that um trey and i have talked about the fact that quite often the whole point of a novelization is to reproduce a story oh geez it's running low on storage space how is that possible um that it uh what was i saying that 
novelizations, by their very nature, are meant to reproduce things that you can't watch mm -hmm. and to recreate them in the head. Now, if you have something that you can't go and watch on videotape, then the novelization has to do even more of that duty. And a good novelizer is either going to go completely different, or they're going to go with something quite the same. The Crusaders, that's an instance of Whitaker. Basically, it's the story you get on screen, but it's so much better, and yet there's all that, you know, barber whipping going on in it. <laughs> And that's a bit of a difficulty. Yeah. Yeah, there was that. Yeah. I, I like it better than Marco Polo. Mm. Basically, that's what it comes down to. Not as much as Aztecs, but certainly much more than Marco Polo, because Marco Polo, I don't know. That was so long ago. I'm still trying to remember like details about that one. Mm -hmm. um, that's fine. Well, I, I will accept this. Okay. Um, yes, it is. It can be better than that one, no problem. Well, before we... Before we go on to anything else, I do want to play you that scene. The very last scene of that episode. And it's audio only, so hopefully we'll be able to actually... Is it a speech? Yeah. In fact, this is uh, from, from the moment the woodcuts begin to after the screams have died out. This is basically uh, Hartnell and Stephen. But that's more, what you're describing is more emotionally affecting, that we, affecting what we had at the end of this book. Oh, yeah. It's almost an after. I agree. Yeah. Okay. Let's uh, get this going. Surely there was something we could have done. No, nothing. Nothing. In any case, I cannot change the course of history. You know that. The massacre continued for several days in Paris and then spread itself to other parts of France. Oh, the senseless What a terrible pain to the past. Did they all die? Most of them. About 10,000 in Paris alone. The Admiral? Yes. Nicholas? You have to leave Anne Shepley there to die. The girl! The girl was with me! You brought her with her, she needn't have died. But no, you have to leave her there to be slaughtered. Well, it is possible, of course, she didn't die, and I'd like to leave her. Pattern. 
therefore, don't try and judge it from where you stand. I was right to do as I did. Yes, that I firmly believe. And so Stephen goes out the door, and the doctor sits Even there. after all this time, he cannot understand. I dare not change the course of history. Well, at least I taught him to take some precautions. He did remember to look at the scanner before he opened the doors. Now, they're all gone. All gone. None of them could understand. Not even my little Susan. Oh, Vicky. And as for Barbara and Chatterton, Chesterton, they were all too impatient to get back to their own time. into the TARDIS and ruins all our lives. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Having not seen that actress, I assume that she's an actual bird on the hook. <laughs> <laughs> she might as well be. But you can hear that that story ends very differently than I, this does. I feel like other writers have given us this Hartnell Doctor where he is very brusque and seemingly unfeeling to the companions, and then the writer gives us a much more nuanced, introspective, um, uh, internal soliloquy that's not shared with the others, but shared with the reader. We don't have that in this book. No. I feel like it's like that speech was an inspiration for other writers. We don't ever see him care about Stephen at all, I feel like, in any of the books. So that was actually kind of an interesting moment. He does care about him in some way. Oh, yeah. And he's quite pleased when he comes back. Right. But here we don't get the impression that he would care about him at all, which it didn't work with his own character development. He does not care about Stephen the way he did care about the others. <laughs> no. That's a contrast to that. Yeah. But we can hear um, his regret that no yeah. one wants to stay. Yeah. And why can't he go back to his planet? Well, you don't have to tell me if it's <laughs> no, 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 it's it's an open question. Nobody knows really what. Oh. He will later claim that he left Gallifrey, which is the name of his planet, because he was bored and he wanted to see the universe. That doesn't explain why he took Susan with him. It doesn't explain why he stole a TARDIS to do it. Mm -hmm. So there are all sorts of um, 
that's one of the secrets around the series. So as the expert fan, what are your thoughts on the framing device? Oh my god. Oh. Yeah. And how does that fit into a larger mythology? I was like, is this just a big flashback? Like, I was going to ask this? you both about that myself. Well, which because... doctor, like, in terms of asking which doctor do you think this is? Oh, it's the first doctor still. Really? Yeah. Okay. Because it um, basically says... I think it several ones on. Yeah, because, uh, let's see... The doctor sat in the garden, which reminded him uh, when Stephen, not Stephen, is blah, 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 he looked around. I thought it was so far in the future, just all his original companions were running together for him. His journeys had come to a temporary halt. The celestial retirement was a far from unpleasant condition when his memories were so rich. Um, there's a matter, just one spokesman, if you don't mind. I'm not deaf. Ah, Paris, France. Yes, I remember. So, really, as long as that. That's a weird thing. That sound, it sounds like Hartnell. Mm. It is impossible to know where that would have happened. And we have the doctor retorting sharply. That's a Hartnellism. Yeah. It's not the second doctor. Um, not to give anything away, but we don't even know about the Time Lords mm. until the very last story of the second doctor's run. I thought in 1987 he was imagining, the author was imagining several Doctors on and maybe even in the future from the ones that have been portrayed. Well, the like interesting that. thing is, the Doctor, by that time on television, had been put on trial by the Time Lords. Mm. Okay. But it was the Sixth Doctor. Oh, it could be the Sixth Doctor. Goodness, it could be, because the Sixth Colin Baker, who recorded our bumper, yeah. yes, he uh, actually acts very much like Arnold, but it's not... It's hard to say. That framing device bothers me because on the one hand, it's Lucarati trying to bring in something that an 80s reader would know about, but any 80s reader reading this would say, that's not the Time Lords. Where did this happen? When was this supposed to have happened? What the They're fuck? They're bringing in the woodcuts. The woodcuts are introduced as evidence. Yes. Right? Which is more pointing now that you told me how it's used in the episodes. Yeah. Yeah, it's 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 a PowerPoint out of hell. But I basically, shouldn't have original. to know that about an episode that's not available. You should not. You should Everything not. that's emotionally resonant is information or audio that you're bringing in yeah. that yeah. I Other. wouldn't have reading the book. All the historical information that they were interesting to me, I was bringing in for not reading the this book. Is all it's not... And, this is yeah. like the theme of Star, of Star Wars prequels. It's like the third one because it's reminding you of better movies and more. Yeah. Yes. It's borrowing all of that. Exactly. You know, those movies, it's just, oh, that guy's on fire. That's sad for him. Yeah. Yeah. But it is moving when you're watching it because you're thinking of these other things. But it's not but it's not novel is like It's that. not earned emotion. Right, right. Not, not by that one movie and not by this one book. I agree. And even with all that Anne Chaplet gets to do in the story, you still can't give two shits about her by the end of it. Who cares if Dodo Chaplet is her great-great-great-great-granddaughter, especially since Dodo Dodo Chaplet. Here, it sounds like the Doctor really likes Dodo. (laughs) Which is great. He probably does. Um, It's going to set up a weird situation with the next book. Here's the story of what happened with Odo. They were considering Anne for the companion. They decided on the same grounds as Katarina that she wouldn't work out. They shouldn't have a companion who's from a 
pre-technological society. So they decided instead, okay, let's rush something to the page. Oh, let's say that she's the descendant and her name's Dodo and she's Liverpudlian, which doesn't last for long. In fact, the one thing that's interesting about Dodo is gone by the time you see her the next week. It's gone by BBC Edict. Because at the time they couldn't speak in anything but uh, a received pronunciation. So the higher-up said, she's got a Liverpudlian accent? No, 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 no. No, she's got to talk with proper British English. It's like, seriously. Let someone have a non... Yeah, they all did. They all did. That's so weird. Yeah, it really is. Totally before the ascent of Michael Caine. Oh, God, yeah. Oh, God, yeah. Definitely. And finally, you know, the new series, the very first Doctor we get, has a Mancunian accent. And it's like, okay, they're past that, we can see. But, but, uh, no. Yeah. Strange thing for them to go on about. I know. So, I, I don't know, in my young life, I, I think of the BBC as very level-headed, and no. <laughs> it's like, no, you're not allowed to be from that other part of no. Britain. Oh, yeah. Okay, very strange. Exactly, it's got to be received pronunciation. Okay. And the weird thing is, right after that speech is when we first meet her, because she rushes into the TARDIS and they all go off together. So that her very first story, completely as a companion, is the next one. But that also means if we're reading these in story order, you haven't met Dodo yet. And you're not going to meet Dodo until after they have met her, which is just strange. There's nothing in this story that would make me interested in Dodo, so I don't feel much of a loss. Good. Also, why the hell is her name Dodo? It's short for Dorothea. Fortunate nickname. Dorothea. Um, Extinct bird. Yes. And the fact that she's dumber than a yeah, box of fucking that's rocks. Yeah, very unfortunate. She's okay. dumber than a box of retarded rocks. It's really that bad. I'm sorry to be that on PC. Oh dear. Oh but she's dear. truly that bad. Sorry, Sorry. But yes, it's true. She's horrible. Um, that's... A, and I shouldn't say that because now I'm setting you up for when you do meet her and when we get to the Gunfighters, which is another Donald Cotton script, she's wonderful. But only for that script. Mm. And but only for that writer. Just record. thanks to Donald Cotton. Not yeah, to because Donald Cotton could probably make that piece of cheese over there <laughs> into an emotionally interesting <laughs> and intelligent <laughs> character. Well, at least have some very good <laughs> Yes, exactly. And get some good lines and all. Anything else that we can think of? Check my notes. Um... Relevant to our nattering on here. Oh, and to answer your question, yeah. the framing device, I hate it. Oh. There we go. <laughs> <laughs> it's too bad it sucks, I hate it. There we go. Where is the doctor, Stephen insisted? Uh, Stephen insisted. Uh, with the apothecary he went to see, Lauren said. For 24 hours, Stephen replied this week. Lauren I had a lot said. to talk about. <laughs> I know apothecaries, and once you get them together, there's no stopping them. One of them raises the point, another one says, we need Joseph's opinion, and on and on, and someone goes off and gets to find him, and they can go on for days. So I thought that was maybe that way we resembled that remark. <laughs> Just a little bit. <laughs> In a good way. I That's hope. right. Uh, I really like how the last sentence of this whole story. It was back in the tunnels, reliving the exhilaration of those helter skelter dashes through the darkness. I'm like, literally, you ended on the dog carts. Like, that's the last <laughs> thing you wanted to leave in the story. Is he this, was excited. Is 
excited about the dog carts. Really excited about these dog carts. Yeah, because uh, he glances oh, at them and says, "So I get, I get to re- ride in that." Dog carts. <laughs> yes. What about the Matriarchal Eugenesis again? Galaxy. 4? Oh, Galaxy Four. For all that I complained about it, it's one that I actually do find my mind wandering back to elements of. Yeah. And because it's the one where Stephen had the most personality because yeah. he was so angry, and yes. even if it was like sort of maximum toxic masculinity, angry, it still was personality. True. But there's a, the recurring theme in there that the doctor looks at Stephen's body and wants it if it's not as sexy as it sounds but he wants to occupy it he's thinking about how great it would be to be young to be young and healthy and not have to worry about being brittle and it just that actually last line reminded me of how much more eloquently that was expressed in that super weird Gnostic manifesto um compared to this well because it really did have some emotionally affecting moments and it had a much more moving portrayal of him longing for a return to the excitement of a younger self. Yeah, and I and agree. And this just seemed like a, I don't know, a cheap, classy knockoff. I agree. And that's something else that I think about this it's book, too, that this book, even hey, though I like... the dog part sure was exciting. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah. What was it like to recapture my youth? Well, Woo! I kind of like yeah. the televised version, but I also just much prefer this. But, God, it is like The Shining. Mm-hmm. The book is good. The movie is good. Do they have anything to do with each other? Fuck all. They have fuck all to do with each other. They're completely different stories. I think this is the story that the Doctor made up to tell the Time Lords about his non-interference when actually he could have just told the story of how Stephen almost left him because he refused to do anything. Mm. Yeah. That's an interesting theory. Yeah, I think so. I think this is just the Doctor imagining what it would have been like to take a more active stance in history. This is neither here nor there, but I can easily imagine that this is why the Doctor left, is because he's like a misfit Time Lord. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he's the, the misfit on the playground. Oh, yeah. and he's being totally mistreated, so he stole a TARDIS, which he wasn't allowed to yeah. use. And fled, and now he's doing this and sort of learning his lessons. Yeah, um, we find out he's as bad as another character that we know, the meddling monk who mm-hmm. didn't pay attention in class, stole a TARDIS, left, well, run off to. Anything in here is amusing as a meddling monk. I love yes. a meddling monk. I'm the only I one know you do. <laughs> and his, unfortunately, it's never going to come up again. That's okay. Which I'll is... find fulfillment in other areas. <laughs> <laughs> well, speaking of which, as we always do, Let's go to goodreads.com and get that fulfillment in your life for online reviews of the book written by other readers. If you're listening to this podcast and want to have your future your review featured... Have your future told. Have your future told by a panelist. Then write a review on Goodreads. Write a comment. Human hair. We'll read it. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah you, you know the I drill. Even though... I go for like an ear finger. I, I don't know. human finger. Even and though these two have ruined have my intro <laughs> to it, you know the drill. So here we go. The average rating for this story out of five stars is 3.44, which is actually quite high. Indeed. Yeah. Here are some sample reviews. You remember Daniel Kukwa. He gives it four stars and says it's a completely different reimagining of the story by its original author. Treat it as a companion rather than a replacement of the original, and you'll be rewarded with some fascinating history, a few action set pieces, a meeting of doubles that didn't happen on TV, and a surprise prologue epilogue featuring the First Doctor. See, he thinks it's the First Doctor, too. And the Time Lords. Travis gives it three stars and says it's one of the weaker of the Who historicals, but still pretty interesting. The episode's gone, so this is your only way to see this story. It's a look at a lesser-known historical event, and it's the First Doctor and Stephen, which is an interesting combination. Very rare to see the Doctor and just a male companion. 
Watching the new series, you'd start to think the guys weren't allowed on the TARDIS. That's true. Lots of political intrigue and running around Paris makes up for a pretty weak supporting cast, but the twist of the bad guy was fun and made me wish the TV footage was still around. Well, it would be different TV footage. And finally, Leela42 gives it three stars and says, First Doctor and Stephen. Novelization of a season three story that no longer exists. So while the outline is the same, the finer details are somewhat different. Up here, historical. The author does a good job with description and geography. It looks like it. I think this is composed by some of our, um, our students. students? Yeah. Just a little bit. Because, well, no. Our oh, students know nothing about economy of language. This is all economy of language. An unusual novelization that there's originally no action, but many meetings and near misses. Note, none of the oft-referenced epilogue is in it. Example, Dodo is only mentioned in passing. Instead, the story's book ended with the First Doctor denying Time Lord allegations that he had interfered in events. Okay, so, Jenny, why don't you go first? Out of five stars, what would you give this book? I think I went two out of five, question mark? Like, in the sense that I don't, there's nothing in here to deeply offend me. It's not like some of the other books where I was like, oh wow, the female characters are treated so illy, or the the writing was just... uh, you know, loathful. Loathful? Loathsome. Uh, loathsome, yeah, that's, that's what I was going for. But it it had that thing where it, it fell in my esteem because of being so average. I'm like, this is, it annoys me how mediocre it is. So. I can see that, <laughs> just, yeah. Like, it's not, it's not bad enough that I can really enjoy just seeing it. I'm just kind of like, oh, it's all home. You know, that's fine. Um, two out of five. All right, two out of five. I also? know 1.5, which is a, same level as Planet of Giant Dicks. At best. Wow. Yeah, I thought that was actually a better self-contained story. Hmm. Okay. That was a little more fun. And I feel strangely about this, <laughs> because it's a very different story for me, obviously, and it, so I've got this kind of, this is the wrong phrase, I'm, I'm borrowing a very serious phrase for something silly like this double consciousness. <laughs> that I'm aware of the story in one version and I'm aware of it this way and I like this version, but this one suffers from not having that speech at the end and that speech is just beautiful. But to have that speech, you have to have a very different story and that's what happens. In many ways, this version strangely improved and it no longer needs that speech. But it's one of the handful of times in Doctor Who history where the novel's actually better than the televised version. That being said, you could possibly say that the televised version wasn't all that great, except it's considered one of the best historicals that we no longer have. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering if part of that reputation is all because of that last speech, and that's all Donald Tosh. Mm-hmm. That's got to be Tosh. It's not uh, mm-hmm. Lucarati. So, believe it or not, I'm giving this one four out of five. Oh. I know, i probably ruined my reputation among the few that are still listening to us, but that's fine. Really? So, yeah. I'm allowed to like things that you like. Oh, I know, I know. 
But and I'm just a cynical ex-MFA, so... <laughs> well, so am I. <laughs> I'm very salty. Yeah, so am I. I'm saltier than the average... The, I don't know what I'm trying to say there. Anyway. Well, thank you guys. And thank you. thank you, fellow time travelers, for giving us your valuable time. Next time we finally get to meet this new companion, Dodo, in Paul Erickson's novelization of his script of The Ark, which is our Christmas special. And if all works out, we will be joined by special guest, guest panelist Rory Yobst. Is that the way he pronounces it, or is it Yobst? <laughs> I've been meaning to ask him. I'm sorry, Rory. And by the time he gets here, we'll actually know how to pronounce his damn name. In the meantime, if you've liked what you've heard here, like us on Facebook at Doctor Who Target Book Club Podcast, all one word with no spaces. You can also visit our still relatively pristine subreddit at reddit.com forward slash r forward slash dwtargetbc. Also feel free to relatively watch... Relatively mean. Relatively mean there's been one comment. Was it actually real or was it a boss listening sense? I still don't know. <laughs> okay. And Who's proffering sense? Thank YouTube, you <laughs> On YouTube, on YouTube, we have the first 12 episodes. Give us a thumbs up, comment. You know where it is. Follow us on Twitter. We're at DWTargetBC. Subscribe to us via the podcaster of your choice. We're on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, TuneIn, and Google Play Store. If all else fails you, email us at dwtargetbc at gmail.com. If you'd like to support us, go to our Patreon page because we've got some books to give away. And we've got an episode that only three of y'all have gotten to listen to. We'd love all of you to listen to it. Thank you very much for listening and enjoy your travels. Bye-bye. Yet another Hartnell story novelized in the 80s in our discussion of John Lucarotti's final novelization. <laughs> there, there's a year in highlight. <laughs> yes, let's try that again.